Chapter 3 of The Romance of Modern Electricity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avayi in June 2022. The Romance of Modern Electricity by Charles R. Gibson. Chapter 3 How Batteries Were Invented what the twitching of a frog's legs led to, a debt we owe to two Italian professors, the meaning of electric pressure. Can we store electricity? Some early experimenters have an alarming experience. The true meaning of conductors and insulators. We have become so accustomed to the use of electric batteries that people seldom stop to ask how it was that the principle of these was first discovered. The story is a very simple and interesting one. A little more than a century ago an Italian physician, Professor Galvani, made a series of experiments with one of those early electrical machines such as described in the preceding chapter. He was studying the effect of an electric charge upon animal structures and while experimenting, he observed that the legs of a freshly killed frog were convulsed if they were placed near to the discharge of an electrical machine. Some writers believe this discovery to have been purely accidental, and they relate the story how some edible frogs had been skinned to make soup for Madame Galvani, who was an invalid, and that these frogs happened to be lying in the professor's laboratory when he first observed this peculiar twitching. One would not expect to find frogs, partially prepared for food, to be left lying about an experimental laboratory, especially when the master of the house was a doctor. It is more reasonable to suppose that Galvani, who was a professor of anatomy, would be purposely trying the effect of these discharges upon a lifeless frog. Be that as it may, there is no doubt that, after having once observed these convulsive kicks, he would proceed with further experiments, so that the next part of the story seems quite probable. Having passed a copper skewer through the limbs of a frog, Galvani was about to hang these up on an iron rail, when, as soon as the copper touched the iron, he noticed the same convulsive twitching which he had previously observed to be due to the discharge of an electrical machine. A few further trials and Galvani would find that this phenomenon could be repeated at will. It was soon found that the best effect was obtained by touching a nerve in the frog's limb with a piece of zinc and a muscle with a piece of copper, and then, as soon as the two free ends of the metals were brought together, the convulsive kick took place, just as though the frog's legs had come back to life. Galvani failed to give a correct explanation of the cause of this phenomenon. He attributed the twitching movement to electricity generated by the animal tissue itself, but the correct solution was suggested by another Italian professor, Volta. He maintained that the electricity was not in the animal, but was due to the contact of the two different metals being in touch also with the moist flesh. Volta was soon able to prove his assertion by making up a battery of pieces of dissimilar metals. The word battery is here used in the same sense as one speaks of a battery of guns. 
Taking a number of discs of zinc and the same number of copper discs, Volta placed these in pairs of one copper and one zinc, each pair being separated from its neighbor pair by a wafer of cloth moistened with acidulated water. When the topmost zinc was brought into metallic contact with the bottom copper disc, by joining these together with a wire, it was found that a continuous current of electricity was set up in the wire. Volta was able with his pile of discs to show an electric spark, but believing that he might still increase the effect, he placed each pair of discs in a separate vessel filled with acidulated water, instead of merely dividing them by a moist cloth. When these different couples were connected up as in figure 2, a very enhanced effect was produced. This second arrangement went by the name of Volta's cells, and the diagram represents several cells coupled together, forming a battery of cells. It has become general to speak of one cell as a battery, but we have no more right to do so than to call one gun a battery of guns. One very often hears people speak of a galvanic battery, but it would be more appropriate to say a voltaic battery, for Galvani had no part in the suggestion of the chemical cell or battery, which is due entirely to Volta. It was, of course, Galvani's frog experiment that led Volta to make investigations which ultimately resulted in the voltaic cell, but Galvani was on quite the wrong track as regards the meaning of the frog experiment. Surely we owe a great deal to both Galvani and Volta, for it is as though they had tamed the wild and fiery electricity of earlier times and made it behave in a more tractable manner. The chemical cell or battery of the present day is very similar to Volta's earliest form. One battery in very general use consists of a piece of carbon and a piece of zinc immersed together in a glass jar containing a solution made by dissolving some sal ammoniac, ammonium chloride, in water. One finds very little variation in the size of these cells, and the reason is that no matter how large any particular cell is made, the electric pressure is always the same. The pressure, or, as it is termed, the electromotive force, EMF, of a cell varies somewhat according to the metals and chemicals used, but it is invariably between 1 and 2 volts, the volt being the unit of pressure, as will be explained later. If we made a cell as large as the ocean, we should still find the same low voltage. We should have an increased quantity at hand, but, without an efficient pressure to drive it through any resistance we put in its path, it would be of very little use for any practical purpose. We might have an immense reservoir of water harnessed to a water wheel, but if the reservoir was situated at sea level, it would have no available pressure and we could not get the water to do useful work. If we take a number of cells and form a battery by coupling together all the zincs and then all the carbons, we have still the same result as far as pressure is concerned, for it is just as though we had one large cell. But if we couple the cells together, connecting the zinc of one cell with the carbon of the next, then we get the added pressures of all the cells. If we take four cells of two volts each and couple them as just described in series, we obtain a pressure of about eight volts. 
This question of connecting cells for pressure or for quantity is so often a stumbling block that I have endeavoured to find some more expressive way of fixing the particulars in one's mind. If we picture what takes place in a single cell, the matter may be clearer. Owing to chemical action in the cell, a current flows between the free ends of the carbon and zinc, and if a wire join the two, there will be a flow of electricity from the carbon to the zinc. If instead of connecting these two elements of the same cell together, we lead a wire from the carbon of one cell to the zinc of the next, which is in the same condition as the zinc of the first cell, then we have a pressure of 2 volts from number 1 carbon to number 2 zinc, which will add on to the pressure now produced in the second cell, and so on. We thus obtain about 8 volts from the combined pressures of the four cells, but there is a little loss, owing to the power dissipated in overcoming the resistance offered to the current by passing through all the cells. If, on the other hand, we have the four separate cells as before, but connect all the zincs together, the zincs will all be in the same electrical condition. Since the electromotive force is the same in each cell, the carbons will also be in the same electrical condition and may be connected together. But we gain nothing in pressure, the effect being the same as would be obtained with a single cell having a large zinc and a large carbon. But in this case, the four cells offer less resistance to the passage of the electric current through them. For almost all practical purposes, we connect the cells in series to get the increased pressure required to overcome the resistance offered by the apparatus through which we wish to send the current. Almost everyone now understands that we cannot create energy, but that we can merely transform it from one kind or form of energy to another. In our bodies we transform the chemical energy of our food into physical energy. We supply the muscles with what is called inogen, which gives them energy to contract at our will, and if one mounts a bicycle he can get his muscles to transform this energy into a very apparent mechanical motion, and so on. If we cease to partake of food, we soon use up all the available energy, and as this inogen is produced at a certain rate, we may, by continuous working, use it up quicker than it is being produced, in which case we feel a lack of energy, and as soon as we thus become fatigued, we should give our muscles rest to allow time for a further formation of inogen. It is apparent that in the battery it is chemical energy which is transformed into electrical energy, and if we continue this process until the chemical action ceases, the transformation will also stop, so that it is necessary in time to add new exciting chemicals. These batteries of cells are called primary batteries, as also are the dry cells which are now so much in demand. The principle of these dry cells is just the same as in the simple cell already described, but the liquid is replaced by a moist paste for convenience of handling. This seems a convenient opportunity of mentioning secondary batteries, more commonly called storage batteries or accumulators. A secondary cell may consist of two leaden plates perforated with holes which are filled in with red lead and immersed in dilute sulfuric acid. 
there is no chemical action between these two similar plates so that we cannot call forth any electrical energy as we do from a primary cell if however a current of electricity from another source is passed through this secondary cell the chemical condition of the plates is found to be entirely changed and strange to say the change in each plate has been different at the one plate peroxide of lead is formed while at the other spongy lead is observed it almost seems like a fairy tale to learn that when these two plates are now connected to each other by a wire the electricity appears to return from one plate to the other in the opposite direction to which it was passed through the cell producing a steady electric current in the wire circuit on further consideration it may seem less wonderful than the simple primary cell before described for we have in this secondary cell merely made as it were an artificial primary cell in charging the secondary cell or accumulator we have transformed electrical energy into chemical energy which later is really what we have stored and which as soon as the plates are connected by a wire is again transformed into electrical energy this can hardly be called storing electricity as soon as the plates have worked back to their normal condition they become inert but they may be recharged and so on i think a good analogy may be found in the simple principle of the old grandfather's clock when the clock is standing with its weight at the bottom and showing no signs of energy it is analogous to the secondary cell uncharged the weights are then raised against the pull of gravity and some physical energy is expended by the person thus winding up the clock in the other picture this is equivalent to the charging of the cell the electrical source distributing the chemical conditions of the plates further the clock weights when released in falling back to zero drive the clockwork but as soon as they reach the bottom no energy is available analogous to this is the joining of the plates by a wire through which a current of electricity flows until the plates have reached their normal condition when no further available energy remains to be transformed as already remarked it is chemical energy that is stored in these accumulators so that we can only speak of storing electricity indirectly can electricity be stored this question naturally arose in the minds of even the earliest experimenters these men were getting certain effects from their rubbing machines and it was reasonable to suppose that if they could only store up a quantity of electricity they would get a greater effect it has been discovered that glass offered a very great resistance to the passage of electricity so it was suggested to try and charge some water in a glass jar and thus prevent the accumulated electricity from escaping several experimenters appear to have been at work in this direction at the one time and in the university of leiden netherlands while this experiment was being carried out quite an alarming incident occurred the water having been charged the person holding the glass jar very naturally took hold of the metal which had been conveying the charge to the water in order to disconnect it from the machine but whenever he touched this he received a severe shock through the arms and breast in this way it was discovered that if a conductor is charged inside a glass vessel and having another conductor outside 
As soon as the conductors are connected together, there is a sudden discharge of the accumulated electric strain. In the original experiment, the water formed the inside conductor, while the experimenter holding the jar was the outside conductor. But Leiden jars were constructed using a tinfoil coating both on the inside and the outside of the glass, carrying the foils about halfway up the jar. A metal connection on an upright rod is placed inside, and it is then convenient to discharge the jar by a pair of discharging tongs, touching the outside tinfoil with one prong and bringing the other near to the metal upright, when a vivid spark is seen at this point. By having the metal coatings of the Leiden jar removable, it may be shown that the electric strain is stored in the glass and not in the metal coatings. It may be of service to remark at this point that all bodies will conduct electricity, provided the current has sufficient pressure to overcome the resistance offered to its passage. The difference between the conducting properties of some materials, however, is as great as is a drop of water to a mighty ocean, or perhaps a better analogy would be to say that while a pipe or tube will conduct water, a solid log of wood will also do so, but in a very different degree. The metals are very good conductors of electricity, silver and copper being the best, and being very nearly equally good, copper is, of course, preferred for economy, and it is this property of copper which has so increased the demand for the metal during the last half century. Glass, India rubber, cotton and silk are all such poor conductors that they have been termed non-conductors or insulators. Between the metals and these come some materials which are neither good conductors nor good insulators, and it must be borne in mind that these terms are merely comparative, for a substance might be a conductor for one purpose and an insulator for another. A heap of sand may be sufficient to stop a tiny streamlet on its way to the ocean, but something more would be required to stop the same amount of water issuing under pressure from the nozzle of a hose-pipe. When two bodies are said to be put into metallic contact with each other, it simply means that they are connected together by a wire or other piece of metal, which offers a conducting path through which electricity may be caused to pass from the one object to the other. What about the electric pressure of an accumulator? It is the same humble story of about 2 volts per cell, and increased pressure is obtained, just as in the case of the primary battery, by connecting the plates of different electrical conditions together. These secondary batteries are not only of great use as reservoirs, but they give a uniformly steady current, whereas the current obtainable from a primary battery is very intermittent, owing to hydrogen gas collecting on the carbon plates and interfering with the passage of the current. Primary batteries are all right for electric bells, telephones, etc., where there is not a continuous call upon their energy, but the accumulator is necessary where a constant current is desired. End of chapter 3